Father, we do want to uh, be receptive to your word. We want to be open to what it has to say to each of us this evening. And so soften our hearts now, Lord, any distractions, set them aside in our minds and focus us on what your word says. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Oftentimes we'll see people who have ended up in a place in life that we never expected. Those who know this person often will say, oh man, we just never saw it coming. However, more often than not, if you were to have the inside scoop on this person's life, you would realize and see quickly that it was a series of events that led to the state where they're at. It wouldn't actually be all that surprising. And brothers and sisters, so it is with the Christian life. When people begin to stray from the fundamentals of Christianity, it's never going off a cliff, but like casting crowns, the song goes, it's a slow fade. It's a series of choices that lead to more choices, and it's a straying from the fundamentals of the faith. It's a straying from the advice of those who are godly in their lives, from the advice of those who are solid believers in their lives, and next thing you know, they're in a completely different place than they originally were. And really, there's two primary areas where people stray. One is in accordance with who Jesus was, or their lack of understanding or lack of belief, with regards to what's true about who Jesus was, and two, with regards to what he did or what he came to accomplish. And this is one of the reasons that this series is so important, The Lion and the Lamb, is because we are studying the fundamentals of the faith. And in geometry, if you have an angle and it's off by just a slight fraction at the beginning, what happens as you go down that line? The farther down the line you go, the greater and greater the distance becomes. And so it is in Christianity. So this series is vital. It's crucial, no matter where you're at in your walk with the Lord, uh, <clears throat> so that we don't stray from the, faith, <clears throat> from the faith. In fact, listen to this. Every cult, every deviation, I think you could really boil it down. Every false religion, you could boil it down to a misunderstanding of the person and the work of Jesus. They've twisted, they've tweaked, they've misrepresented and misunderstood something about his person and his work. And this isn't new. Guys, this isn't new at all. In fact, just open, open your Bibles to 1 Timothy, and we're going to consider a passage from 1 Timothy. But first, I just want to survey in this epistle how many times Paul talks about straying from the faith. And I want to show you the cause. And so either listen or follow along. But starting in 1 Timothy 1, verse 6, it says, For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion. And if you were to read on, you'd see it was fruitless discussion regarding the law. In other words, they were misunderstanding what Jesus had accomplished. In 1 Timothy 1, verse 19, it says, he's talking to Timothy, and he says, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you would fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and shipwrecked in regard to their faith. In other words, they had not kept the faith. They had not kept a good conscience. It goes on to say they had blasphemed. In other words, their faith was something in, was in something other than the person of Jesus and what he had done for them. Look at chapter 4. In verses 1 to 3, it says, The Spirit explicitly says, In later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful, uh, 
Deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. These are those who have fallen away from the faith. They're seared in their conscience. They follow doctrines of demons. In other words, they have a misunderstanding of what Christ has really done for them. Again, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, then he is conceited and understands nothing. In other words, what is it that Jesus taught? All you'd have to do is read one of the Gospels, and soon you would realize Jesus taught about who he was and what he came to accomplish, what he came to do. And lastly, 1 Timothy 6, uh, verse 20 um, well, actually, 6 verse 10, it talks about, <clears throat> For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith. Again, putting their faith in something other than the person and work of Christ. Verse 20, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly chatter or worldly and empty chatter, opposing arguments of what's falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Again, arguing over what's falsely called knowledge, not understanding true knowledge that is bound up in the person and work of Christ. And so I think it, it's safe to say that any cult or deviation of true Christianity is likely going wrong in either the person or the work of Christ. And so it is in the biblical times. <clears throat> so then the natural question that we have to ask is this. With all this false teaching... With all these deviations, what was Paul's solution to Timothy? What was Paul going to have Timothy do in order to stay away from error, in order to keep from straying, in order to keep from deviating from the truth? What was Paul's solution? And we don't have time to go back through every one of these examples, but I want you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And in thinking about this, how is Timothy as a pastor, okay, here's the setting. Timothy is the pastor of the church in Ephesus. How is he going to fight for himself and for his people to keep them from straying from the faith? If there's so much erroneous teaching, so many ways to go wrong, how can one possibly stay in what is right? How can we defend against such strong opposition? In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul's going to give really two sections of helpful material. One, he's going to give Timothy four verses on what he needs to worry about for himself. And then he's going to give a few verses on what he needs to <clears throat> teach his people. And that's in 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 10. And verse 16 really summarizes this well. Look at 16. He says, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Just to kind of set the context here, these false teachers, starting in verse 1, were under the influence of Satan himself. Look at verse 1. It says, The Spirit explicitly says, In later times some will fall away from faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. This isn't necessarily in a possessive sort of way, but what Paul's getting at in verse 1 is that Satan's ultimate goal is to turn people away from the truth. Therefore, as they, as they fall away from the truth, they are playing right into his plan. They're gratifying their own desire to deviate from the truth, and in the same time, they're falling right into Satan's plan. And the result in verse 2 of chapter 4 is it says that they're following after those who are hypocrites, those who are liars, 
those who have a seared conscience. They're teaching against the fundamentals of the oracles of God, even down to the most basic union that God has made on earth, which is marriage. That's in verse 3. And so basically, to summarize 1 through 5, Paul's laying out the false teaching and where they're going wrong. They're misusing the law. They're teaching uh, bad things about marriage, wrong things about what you can eat and can't eat. And now he's going to give the solution. And like I said, the way he's going to do this, he's going to say, Timothy, as a pastor, you need to worry about yourself and what you're teaching. You need to pay a close attention to you and, and what you're going to be training your people in. And so to begin this, uh, <laughs> this instruction, look at verse 6. He says, In pointing out these things to the brethren, you, Timothy, will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of faith and the sound doctrine which you have been following. It seems that Paul is going to begin his instruction by pointing out some key characteristics that produce a good servant. And really implied from this, as, as the, really the first step to being a good servant, is there must be a desire to be a good servant. In other words, by Paul saying, hey, Timothy, in order to be a good servant, here's what you need to do. There's an implication, an implied understanding that Timothy wanted to be a good servant. Timothy was a young man, but he was a mature Christian, and he understood the almightiness of God. He understood his sinful condition. He understood that this world was temporal, it's fading, and that Jesus deserves all his praise, his glory, and his honor. Every ounce of worship in his life needed to be given to Jesus. Therefore, Timothy had a desire to just please him. He just wanted to be pleasing to him. And I believe, gang, that when a a person truly grasps this, when you understand this within your soul, it changes everything. It changes your entire grid through which you view the world. Now suddenly the, the phrase saved by grace becomes oh so sweet. And all you want to do is be pleasing to your master. Paul really captures this idea well in 2 Corinthians 5.9 when he says, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. All Paul wanted to do was be pleasing to the master. Paul wanted to be pleasing to God, and that's what Timothy wanted as well. Therefore, in, in 1 Timothy 4, verse 6, he says, If you want to be a good servant, then listen up, because I'm going to give some instruction. Now, in verse 6, he says, by pointing, he says, by pointing these things out, it says in the beginning, in pointing out these things, Timothy would be a good servant. And so he's not only speaking of the warning that he just gave, but he's also referencing back to the previous parts of the book where Paul had told Timothy, you need to be praying for all sorts of people. He laid out what the qualifications of a spiritual leader ought to be, elders and deacons. Uh, He laid out how men and women and younger men and younger women ought to act in the church. And therefore, he's saying, by pointing out all of this, Timothy, you will be a good servant of Christ. Now, the reason, catch this, the reason Paul knew that Timothy would be a good servant was right in this text. He says, you will be a good servant of Christ, constantly nourished on the words of faith and sound doctrine, which you have been following. And so the second characteristic that produces a good servant of Christ is bound up in a commitment to the word of God. It's a commitment to to the word of God. In other words, Timothy's success as a minister was bound up in his commitment to the word of God. 
Just a few verses earlier, Paul had alluded to the false doctrine that was being taught. And now in verse 6, what kind of doctrine does he talk about? He says, the sound doctrine. And that word sound just pops to me. He says, you've been following the sound doctrine. Paul is contrasting all the false doctrine and the sound doctrine that Timothy was following. And Timothy, as a young man, was doing this. He was immersing himself in what was true. He was following sound doctrine. In fact, the word nourished, constantly nourished on the words of faith, it it means to be educated in, to be trained up, and it means to form the mind. And so Timothy was already forming his mind in accordance with what was true. He was being transformed by the renewing of his mind by the word. And yet Paul is saying, do this and do this all the more. Continue in this, Timothy. This is why Paul, if you guys ever thought about this, Paul entrusted Timothy with so much. I mean, Timothy was basically Paul's itinerant preacher. I did a study one time and and just looked for the word Timothy and found that Paul was constantly sending him from church to church to church to Ephesus and, well, he's pastoring in Ephesus, but he had visited Philippi and Thessalonica and all these other churches because Paul trusted him because he was rooted in the word. He was following sound doctrine. And now his role was to be a pastor. He was no longer traveling around, but he was rooted in Ephesus as a pastor. And Paul is saying, just as you've been doing, keep doing this same thing. Keep following the sound doctrine, which you have been. And really, that's the third uh, key to a good servant of Christ, is one must be a doer of the word. Paul is saying, don't just believe these things, but do it. Keep following. You've been following it. Keep following it. Right? And that's not anything new to Scripture. We know that the rest of the Bible talks about this in James and other places. Don't just be a hearer of the, of the word, but be a doer of the word. And that's what he's saying. Look at verse 6. He says, In pointing out these things, you'll be a good servant, constantly nourished on the words of faith and the sound doctrine, which you have been following. So we know that Paul is reminding him to continue to do this. But why does he say the sound doctrine and the words of faith? He uses these two things. And basically what he's getting at here is Timothy needed to know what the word of God said, and he needed to know what the word of God meant. He needed to have Scripture hidden away in his heart, but he also needed to know the principles of Scripture. Timothy needed to know theology if he was going to be a good servant. It wasn't enough just to know the Word, but he needed to know what the Word meant, what it taught, what was the point of the Bible. And so Paul instructs Timothy to continue being nourished in the Word. Now, not only does he commend Timothy for what he does, but now he's going to give another warning. Look at verse 7. I want you to look in your Bible. Verse 7, the first half says, But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. Well, what were these worldly fables? Well, these were the winds of doctrine that would come about and persuade people away from the truth. They were fairy tales of a sort because, simply put, they just weren't true. And the reason he says fit only for old women is because these sort of fairy tales, these sort of false doctrines, would persuade away those who lacked biblical discernment, right? Oftentimes, the older women were uneducated, undiscerning. And so he says, these type of fairy tales are only, they're only fit for old women. Timothy, you, as a man of God, rooted in the word, have no place with these sort of fairy tales. 
You have discernment, or you ought to have discernment at least. And so it is with anyone who desires to be a good servant of the Lord. We can't be swayed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, every strange teaching that comes about, but we have to be rooted in what is true and have biblical discernment. And it's interesting that basically he's, <clears throat> he's telling him what to put off. He's saying, put off these sort of winds of doctrine. He says, Timothy, if you want godliness, you're going to have to work at it, and you're going to have to fight against these winds of doctrine. And you know what? It's going to take work. And we see that in the second part of this verse. He says, have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old women, but on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And so again, he's saying, put off these worldly fables, but put on or pursue godliness, right? Pursue godliness, and it's going to take work. You're going to have to work at it. You're going to have to labor to avoid error and to pursue truth. In fact, the Greek word here that's translated discipline or exercise or train is the word gymnazo, which is where we get our English word gymnasium, right? And in this context, in this day and age, it was used often to talk about these Olympic athletes who would train for the Olympics. And what it meant was to train naked. And the idea was putting off anything that would hinder them, anything that would... Uh, keep them from training to their maximum ability. I mean, think about trying to run in a onesie snowsuit or something. You know what I mean? It, it makes no sense. And so they would strip everything away and they would train. But the idea is this. The idea is, is that there was intense training involved. Imagine <clears throat> giving yourself to a sport day in, day out, hours during the day. And that's what these Greek athletes were doing. They were exhausting themselves for the sake of their bodies, really. They would rigorously train, exercising full discipline and dedication so that they would be in top working condition. The idea was that they would gain proficiency through practice. In other words, they would work hard and they'd do it for a long time. And it reminds me of a story I read in a book called Discipline Through Godliness by Jay Adams. And he talks about watching the third baseman for the Yankees take ground balls one day uh, before a game. And he said it almost looked like it was just effortless. Like it was an instinct of this guy to feel the ground ball, scoop it up, and throw it to first base. It's, he didn't even have to try. It's almost as if he was born with a glove on. But was that true? No. Anyone who's done a sport or played an instrument knows this sort of efficiency, this sort of really proficiency in something like that comes from day after day taking ground balls, day after day working on your throwing motion. Whatever sport or instrument you're involved in, you know this. And for the professionals, they know it well. And even just think of this. Think of lifting. If you've ever lifted, imagine not lifting for a year and walking in the weight room and trying to bench your max from when you were younger, right? I mean, it's a ridiculous thought. Imagine you're a little bit older in life and you just try and bench your max. You wouldn't do that. Why is that? Because you know your muscles have to be trained day in, day out. And not just trained, but trained with intensity, Right? And all of this is wrapped up in this word to discipline yourself to godliness. And here's the, here's the point, guys. This kind of discipline that Paul's talking about, it's a marathon and it's a sprint. 
It's to work as hard as you can, exhaustively so, and to do it for a long period of time. This is what Paul is telling Timothy to do. He says, Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Right? In light of all the false teaching that I've just talked about, we just surveyed a few in 1 Timothy. In light of all these errors that are going to be coming in at you, you've got to discipline yourself to godliness. You're going to have to give it all you've got and do it for a while. If you want to stay true to the true person and work of Jesus, you're going to have to discipline yourself in sound doctrine. So I just want to ask you guys, do you have what it takes? Do you have this sort of drive? Do you have this sort of fire that you want to run for Jesus? You want to discipline yourself in this sort of way. Maybe as a motivator, there was a man in the early 1700s in Eastern America who got this. He's greatly impacted me in his writings to young converts and what he has called resolutions. A resolution is simply a decision to do or not do something. This man was named Jonathan Edwards, and he crafted a list of resolutions in order to discipline himself to godliness. He made 70 of them, but I'm just going to read six or seven. So just listen to these for a moment, and I want you to imagine writing this as a legitimate goal in your life. Number one, resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most for God's glory my own, and for my own good, profit, and pleasure in the whole of my duration without any consideration of the time, whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence. His fifth resolution was this, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. His 28th resolution was this, resolve to study the scriptures so steadily, constantly and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. Listen to this one, 37, resolve to inquire every night as I'm going to bed, to bed wherein I have been negligent, what sin I have committed and wherein I have denied myself also to do the same at the end of every week, month and year. He said in Resolution 52, I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again. Therefore resolved that I would live just so that as I can, I think I shall wish I had done, supposing I live to old age. Did you catch that? From old age looking back, I want to live in the same way now that I would when I'm older looking back saying I wish I would have lived that way. The last one grips me the most, number 63. Listen closely to this. On the supposition that there, was never, that there never was to be but one individual in the world at any one time who was properly a complete Christian, okay, so there's one guy at any given time who's a complete Christian in all respects of a right stamp, having Christianity always shining in its true luster and appearing excellent and lovely from whatever part and under whatever character viewed, resolved to act just as I would if I strove with all my might to be that one who should live in my time. That is an impressive resolve to discipline oneself to godliness. 
Edwards was committed to disciplining himself to godliness. Paul was committed to this. And not just to godliness, but really the end goal is to becoming more like Christ. Paul wanted to be more like Christ. He wanted Timothy to want to be more like Christ. Therefore, he says, Timothy, discipline yourself to godliness. And you know what, gang? It's going to be worth it. And let me give you a couple reasons why. Look at verse 8. Look at the first part of verse 8. It says, For bodily discipline is only of a little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things. These Greek guys, <laughs> they train and they train and they train and they sweat. Uh, and I'm talking about the guys from the first century. And they inflict pain on their body. They sweat. They spend so much time. And what do they do it for? What do the professional athletes do it for today in the Olympics? They do it for a medal. In this day, they did it for a, a little wreath or a crown. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 9.24, Paul is again using athletic imagery. He says, they do it to receive a perishable wreath. And in 1 Timothy 4, verse 8, he says, bodily discipline is only of a little profit. In other words, their profit is minimal compared to what Christians are going to gain as they discipline themselves for godliness. Now, is there, is there profit to bodily discipline? You bet, right? There's profit in uh, disciplining ourselves with our sleep, with our eating habits, with our exercise, those sort of things, with our time. There is benefit, but it's so minuscule compared to the benefit that comes from godliness. Compared to the spiritual, the, dis the bodily discipline is just tiny. And that's why Paul says godliness is profitable for all things. Listen to this comment on this. I found a helpful comment from a guy named David Wheaton. He used to be a professional tennis player, and he's a believer. He's a strong Christian. He talks about this passage. He says this. He says, discipline itself is not godliness. In other words, if you are a disciplined person, that doesn't make you godly. There are lots of unregenerate folks that are really quite disciplined, who really pull themselves up by the bootstraps and are very disciplined in certain aspects of their life. Not in all areas, but in certain areas. I think a perfect example of this is Tiger Woods. For so many years, we saw Tiger as this incredibly disciplined golfer, up at five in the morning, out at the practice range by six. He'd play his round of golf. He was successful. After he finished playing around, he would be back out there hitting balls on the practice range. He was an incredibly disciplined with regards to golf and his fitness and his diet and everything else. But discipline in and of itself does not mean that you are going to be godly. Waking up at six and going through your perfectly organized schedule all day doesn't make you godly. It says, discipline yourself for godliness. It doesn't say discipline is godliness. It says discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. You need to be disciplined to be godly. It's a step on the way to godliness, and I think that's an important distinction to make. End quote. For Edwards, for Paul... For Timothy, it's not just being disciplined that makes you godly, but it's being disciplined with a goal in sight. That discipline must be directed toward godliness. And this is what Paul has in mind as he's writing to Timothy here in 1 Timothy 4. He doesn't just have discipline in mind, and that's why he compares it to just normal physical discipline, but he has godliness as the goal, Christ-likeness as the goal. He says, 
focus on disciplining to godliness. Why? Because godliness is better. Think about this for a moment. The physical benefits us for a while. Godliness benefits us forever. Physical discipline impacts only your body. Godliness impacts your body and your soul. Physical discipline has no eternal value. Godliness has immense eternal value. And really, this is the exact idea behind the next part of verse 8. Look at, the, look at verse 8 again. He says, Bodily discipline is only of a little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things. Why? Since it holds promise for the life, for the present life, and also for the life to come. Godliness is profitable for the present life. In other words, it's profitable here on earth, and yet it's also profitable in heaven. It's profitable in time right now, and yet it's also profitable in eternity, outside of time. It's profitable in the flesh, and it's profitable in the spirit. It infiltrates all areas of life. In the book, Disciplines of a Godly Man, Kent Hughes says, The disciplined Christian gives and gets the best of both worlds, the world now and the world to come. And then he offers this challenge, and listen to this. He says, do you have the sweat? We're going to enter the gymnasium of divine discipline. We're going to strip away the things that will hold us back. Will we discipline ourselves through the power of the Holy Spirit? He says, I invite you into God's gym to some sanctifying sweat, to some pain and some great pain. But God is looking for a few great men. Guys, godliness infiltrates all areas of life. It affects the way you play, the way you work, the way you eat, the way you interact with people. It is life-consuming. It has immense benefit in this life because as godly Christians, we're set apart to be salt and light to the world. We should be bringing joy to people's lives that are around us because we are godly. And so, it's clear that there is immense benefit now. And not only that, but it says there's benefit for the life to come as well. The godly man, the godly woman will receive eternal rewards in heaven for their godliness. Rewards will be given to faithful believers, to their faithfulness to the Lord during their lives. Their godliness and obedience to the Lord is going to be rewarded. And you want to know what they're going to do? They're graciously going to take their crowns and throw them back at the feet of Jesus. And so what we're seeing from Paul here is really a greater than, less than argument. In other words, if these Olympic athletes, if these guys that train for their physical bodies are putting in so much effort and they're doing it for a puny prize, how much more Christian ought we to discipline ourselves to godliness? How much more we ought to gird up our loins and run as hard as we can because there's not only benefit now, but there's benefit in the future as well. If these guys that are training and giving their lives to this, if they stop doing that for a moment, for a month, for a year, it all goes away. But godliness doesn't fade away. It has eternal impact. And so one might say that Paul has just really, he's told Timothy what to do. He says, discipline yourself. And he's given him the motivation why to do it. And now look at verse 9. It's almost as though he pauses for a moment. He says, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. And the natural question is, what is a trustworthy statement? Which part of what you said, or perhaps the whole of it? And it seems likely that Paul's argument here is hinging on verse 7 when he says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. 
Even looking at verse 10, it starts with the word for, right? Verse 8 starts with the word for. So it's pretty clear that verse 9, he's saying it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Well, what is? Well, that you should discipline yourself to godliness. And just to point out what a unique phrase and how important this is, flip back to 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is the only other time when Paul uses this construction. Look at verse 12. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul is reviewing his testimony for a moment. He's reviewing how he was converted radically in Christ, how he was a persecutor of the way, and yet God showed him mercy, undeservingly so. And now look at verse 15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. So there's the only other use of this construction. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. And let me ask this question. How important is the truth that Paul is pointing out here? If he's going to take the time to say that, is that an important truth on the scale of 1 to 10, maybe a 2 or 3? No. This is a 10, right? He says, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Well, what is? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. That's... That's the core. That is the utmost important truth, right? And so maybe not apples to apples, but you get the point. If Paul's going to take time to say this is a trustworthy statement, he's wanting to get our attention about something. And he uses that same phrase back in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9, to refer to disciplining oneself to godliness. He says, guys, you need to hear this, so listen up again. Paul had a tremendous grasp on the theological and practical errors that were happening in the church of Ephesus, and he knew it was a battle. Therefore, he says, discipline yourself to godliness. And guys, if we're going to survive in our day and age, we have to bury ourselves in the truth. We have to train our minds to think biblically. We have to exhaust ourselves in disciplining to godliness. Not only do we want to survive, but if we're going to thrive in combating error and standing for what's true, we are going to have to know like the back of our hand the person and work of Christ, the uh, sound doctrine and the words of faith. We're going to have to be nourished on these things. We're going to have to live, move, and breathe biblical teaching. We're going to have to live, move, and breathe Jesus. This needs to become part of who we are in the 21st century. And here's the thing. We don't have to know every other religion and all their arguments. You don't have to know everything that's wrong out there. But you have to know what is true and you have to know it well. Just a silly analogy. I think about football a lot of times. And if there's a defender, the offense is constantly trying to trick him. And he's running a counter play. So you send one running back this way and one that way. And it's like, oh, which way? And you got a fake handoff and then you got a pass over the top. And you're constantly, the offense is constantly trying to trick the defense. Sending guards this way when really the ball's going that way. And really as a defender, I know it's not this simple, but there's an aspect in which 
Just show me where the ball's going. All I care about is where the ball's going. I just need to know what's true about what's happening in front of me. Where is the ball? And I'm going to go there. And maybe an analogy that hits more to the point is uh, the government officials who are in charge of uh, identifying faulty or fake currency, fake dollars, you want to know how they train these guys? This is a common analogy. Maybe you've heard it, but they, they don't have these guys look at every form of the fake $100 bill. Okay, there's this one, and there's this one, and then next year there's 100 more. No, what do they do? They have those guys study the dollar bill to the finest details so that they know that dollar bill like the back of their hand. They know the dollar bill well so that anything that's different than it, boom, That's different. Yep, what's that? I don't know what that is, but it's not the dollar bill. That's what they do. And in the same way, brothers and sisters, we need to be trained in the truth of the gospel, the truth of Scripture, so that anything that's different than it, you're equipped to to battle it. We need to know Jesus' person and his work and the depths of it well. Now, at this point you may still ask the question, well, why? Why should I do this? Why should I give myself to studying the Bible? Why should I give myself to Christianity, to understanding the person and work of Christ? We already saw a few good motivations in verse 8, but look at verse 10, because this really nails it home for me. Verse 10, he says, For it is for this that we labor and strive. Hold up, time out. You see what's about to happen? Just a little Bible study tip. You see what's about to happen? He's about to say, hey, why should we do this? Okay, why, Paul? Because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who's the Savior of all men and especially of believers. So why labor? Why strive? Why discipline? Why put in the hard work, the many hours, in order to push away these false teachers and know the truth and be able to defend what's true. Why do we do this? Well, he says, because we have a hope. And not only that, but we have a hope in God. And not only that, but we have a hope in the living God. Friends, who is the living God? It's Jesus, right? Why do we labor and strive in this? Because Jesus is alive. The grave is empty, He rose from the dead. No other religion can say that. Our God rose from the dead and is seated in heaven right now. Therefore, discipline yourself to godliness. Do you see Paul's argument here? For it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God, Jesus, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. And gang, like I said, this closes the case for me at least this evening. As we're considering that which is true against that which is false, there's nothing more motivating than the fact that Jesus is alive and that he's our Savior. His earthly mission was accomplished. He defeated sin in his life. He bore the wrath of God. He proved it by raising from the dead. But Jesus' call still stands. He calls men and women everywhere to repent of their sin, to rethink their standing before God, to turn wholeheartedly to following him. He calls us to lay aside our laboring under the law, to receive his righteousness on the basis of faith. And this is the gospel. Our God took on flesh at a point in history 
And now he's alive from the dead. Do you see why this is so important, gang? People are blaspheming his name. People are neglecting the fact that Jesus is king, and not only king, but Lord, and even equal with Lord. He's creator. He owns everyone. He made them. He has knit together everybody. And yet, what do, the, what do the cults do? What do the deviations do? They stand before him and they say, I can earn it. I don't need you, Jesus. What is that, what is that doing? It's minimizing his person. It's putting less value on Jesus and more value on myself. It's minimizing his work. The cross isn't that important. I'll I'll take the cross, but I'm going to do some works too. I'm going to trust a little bit in my own righteousness. Do you see how this is not just a, a simple mistake? This is blasphemy. This is not understanding the person and the work of Christ. They minimize Christ's value and they maximize their own. And guys, there's error all around us. There's error. There was error in Paul's day, and that's why he's writing to Timothy. There is error everywhere in our day. Therefore, we must discipline ourselves to godliness in knowing and understanding the truth if we're going to stand for Christ in this world. Will you join me in doing this? Not just for this semester, not just for a year, but for the rest of your life. Join me in disciplining ourselves to godliness. Let's pray together. Father, indeed, you are a mighty God. And Lord, we know that Jesus is alive. Father, what an excellent motivation to give our lives to following you. Lord, to give our lives to the two things that are going to last forever, which is your word and people's souls, God. And so, would you stir this group, Lord, to not just discipline themselves, but to discipline ourselves to godliness, Lord, that we would love your word, not just for the sake of knowledge, but Lord, for the sake of knowing you and being able to defend what is true, God. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to partake in this series, the lion and the lamb, who Jesus was and what he did. Father, stir our hearts to be wholehearted followers. Stir our hearts to sell out for this cause, Lord, a cause that is greater than any cause this world has to offer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.